Welcome to the final draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation welcomes back A.B. Endicott. The final draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we're looking into the issues that drive our storytelling and helping you discover more about the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundagara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, unceded lands, and I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land and treaty was never made in Australia. Now, A.B. Endicott joined us on the podcast a few months back. She's a fantasy novelist whose titles include the Legends of the God-Kissed Continent series, uh, including the Queendom of the Seven Lakes duology, and most recently, well, we'll get to that. See, back when we first met Alice, uh, we discussed her essay reflecting on the art and sociology of storytelling, Mirror Mirror. It was was a great conversation. (laughs) It's the name of the podcast. Go back and check it out if you haven't already. But it didn't seem right that we didn't have time to discuss her greater literary output. So today, Alice is back, and we are discussing her latest novel, Deliverance of the Blessed. Deliverance of the Blessed takes us into the world of the sanctuary and a core group of the blessed. Kayleen is mourning the death of her love, Luca. She's desperate and will do almost anything to get him back. And just as she's about to make a fateful and irreversible decision, she's offered a chance. But could hope be more terrible than the loss she feels? In part one of our conversation, Alice is going to be taking us into the world of the God-Kissed Continent and exploring a little bit of how she shapes her world and the issues that she wants to explore. Join me as we discover A.B. Endicott's Deliverance of the Blessed. You might remember that Alice joined us a couple of months ago to discuss her essay, Mirror Mirror, from the new Melbourne publisher, Debut Books. Alice and I talked stories, why we read them, why we tell them, how they help us create our world. But Alice is a creator in her own right. She has her own world, The God-Kissed Continent. There's seven books in this series, and, well, look, it seemed remiss of me not to invite her back and have a chat about them. So, welcoming back to the show, A.B. Endicott. Alice, thanks so much for joining me again. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I think it's telling that when you said she's a repeat, I thought I'm in my head, offender. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks so much for having me back on the show. It's a real delight to be here speaking with you. Look, it's a real delight to have a chance to to delve into this world of yours. And I want to even think about how you go about that. Because, I mean, look, if I cast my mind back to when we could travel... I remember I'd do my research. I'd maybe figure out a little bit of where I'm going when I was approaching a new a new country, a new continent. So I thought maybe, maybe you could just start. Give us a bit of a lonely planet guide introduction to the God-Kissed Continent. <laughs> the God-Kissed Continent world has four distinct series in it, two standalones, one trilogy, and one duology. The Deliverance of the Blessed is a standalone, and the series are each in a different country on this particular continent. So... In terms of the Lonely Planet, what's really nice about each new series and each new country, or each new series, and I suppose each new country, is that I get to really play with a new culture, a new physical environment, a new history, a new set of norms. Uh, I think I mentioned in when I was last on that my background is anthropology. So 
uh, which is the study of people and the study of human culture. And what, so I spend a lot of time when I'm making or I'm, I'm exploring the conceptual world that I'm creating. I spend a lot of time thinking about the norms and the cultures that inform the practices that we see. So deliverance is the society in which magic is the most overt. It is a, so they're a fantasy series, obviously. And it's a society in which magic is the most overt. I don't like to use magic too much as a plot device or as, you know, something that features because I think it can take away from the development of character and the development of story. But there is quite a lot of magic as we, or blessing, as I call it, in this. And um, I think I've lent into this and I've sort of gone, well, why wouldn't there be a lot of magic or why wouldn't you see a lot of magic in this particular society? And it's because the the overriding attitude towards people who are magical, the blessed, is that they are dangerous if they don't learn how to control themselves and their blessing. So from the moment they manifest any kind of magical capacity, they're sent away. And when they are deemed that they are able to control themselves, they are let back into society. Um, so if you don't, you know, if it's not considered that you are able to control yourself, you are not allowed to leave. And I was really interested in this, in this idea of, and I think I was writing the manuscript right after I'd finished teaching the bluest eye. And obviously, you know, there's a world of difference between, a, you know, a lived experience of a black person in America or Australia um, and this particular narrative. But what I was really trying to understand for myself was how can someone be taught to hate themselves and how can someone be taught to effectively self-subjugate? And that was sort of where a lot of that practice came from. And that's sort of how I explore. So I have a concept or an idea. And in this case, the idea was, well, what would you do? What would you break? What taboos would you transgress if someone that you loved more than anything else in the world died and you were given a way to bring them back? What would you, what, who wouldn't you burn to get that happening? And from there, I kind of scratched away at the world and what were the circumstances and why might you kind of have a bit of a disassociation from society? And um, that's sort of where I arrived at in the end. Okay, so Deliverance of the Blessed, you're taking us into, well, I guess as you've just explained, this is the, f- the fourth of the worlds or the countries that you're exploring, even though it's not the mm-hmm. fourth country because there's a beautiful map at the beginning of the book that, <laughs> that lays that out for us. Um, you take us into the world of the sanctuary and a core group yeah. of the blessed. And Kayleen, who is mourning the death of her love, Luca, now, she's desperate. She'll do almost anything to get him back. And just as she's about to make an irreversible decision, she's offered a chance. And I guess you pose the question of, you know, could hope be more terrible than the loss that she's feeling as she, she thinks about what she has to do here? And Deliverance of the Blessed, it hinges on this feeling of loss, how Kayleen might be able to deal with the pain of losing Luca. Why was loss something so important to explore here? And how does loss drive characters, not just Kayleen, but her friends? Because there is a core group here. Kayleen may be feeling the loss most particularly, but they've all lost a friend. Yeah. So I wrote this, I wrote the initial script of this. It would have been 2019, 2018. 
so it was, you know, so it was three years ago now was when I initially wrote it. And I think grief and loss and, you know, really powerful emotions and it's something that's always kind of, to be honest, terrified me and fascinated me because it's something so much of our, to me, our lives and our cultures and our norms in some ways defy thinking about that or help us to move past it or help us to prepare for that. So I've always been fascinated by it and it sort of, I, you know, I, I write to understand my own mind, I think. So it's something that I was playing with. And then I came back to edit it at the beginning of 2020 um, after several several losses um, and I, I twigged that actually the core point isn't what would you do to, you know, what wouldn't you do to bring someone back? But the core, you know, the emotional core of this book is about loss. And then as I came to my really heavy edit, which is I print it out and I edit it by hand, it was right after my grandfather died, which was in the middle of last year. And the loss took on an entirely different meaning. And I was looking at, you know, how do you feel when someone so important to you, someone who, I mean, for me, he'd been there my whole life. But when you lose someone, what is that, you know, how it can really just, it, it throws your entire world out. And I think I, I worked through, and it was in the middle of lockdown in Melbourne, so it was this horrible grey winter. It was cold. You know, we, I was separated from my family. Fortunately, we live within five kilometres of one another, so we could um, meet up and have, have a walk. But, you know, that's not really necessarily the most emotionally nourishing thing to do when you've just suffered this huge loss in your family. And so I kind of worked, I think, through the worst of my, you know, the really cutting edge of my grief by looking at it through the prism of, you know, that intensification of someone who has effectively nothing. Um, and then what obviously the narrative is, but also how do you incorporate that loss into your life? How does that, how does loss change you? How does loss forge you? How does loss, how do you move beyond? So it's very, it was a very, very personal book for me to, to edit and, it, and to write as well. You know, like you, you write that and you go into a particular place. But I think also it, it's funny because um, when we were chatting just before we um, started recording, we were talking about, the, you know, certain things come at the right place in the right time. And this text has really resonated with a lot of people who read it because coming out of 2020, we've all suffered a loss of a form. And so people have really found it, uh, it resonates with them and then it also gives them this idea of, well, you can move beyond loss. So that's why it's important to me, you know, in a very short answer. Structurally, deliverance of the blessed begins in loss. Uh, we don't meet Kayleen and Luca before his death. Uh, we we mm. learn about that through flashback, but we very much begin. We, um, I mean, without giving away exactly what happens at the beginning, we begin in probably the the, the deepest of loss, and we learn to move out of that without having, I guess, that reference point that if you're feeling a personal grief, you have a before um, a before time. What, were, what went into your thinking there, moving structurally from the, that point after the, the deep loss of Luca? Um, well, I don't really like to begin my... I, I think 
just from a from a as an authorial point of view, like I don't love boring introductions. You know, like I don't need a third of a book to establish something, um, and to therefore not you no, know, I have a third of a book to not grab me. So I was like, I, you know, I think it's more interesting for me to see this person in grief and then give us, you know, drip feed the, you know, what was there beforehand. So there are not necessarily flashbacks per se, but, you know, she goes into the garden and she's reminded of a particular moment um, that she spent or she, uh, I think it's in chapter two, they are having breakfast together and she notices just how out of kilter the dynamic of the friendship group is. And so I think it was what I what I wanted to do, what I started off trying to do, and then I thought, oh, I'm not, I don't think I'm skilled enough as an author to accomplish this, is I wanted to actually create an out like an outline of negative space or a character of negative space. So for us to, as a reader, to feel the absence um, that Luca should have um, taken up. And... I don't. I really, I really wanted to do it in a far more explicit way, and to really just have this, this always this sense of like something's missing, something's missing. And as a reader, I can't quite put my finger on it. And then obviously you realize. Um, but I, I honestly, I just don't think I was good enough. As I, I am good enough as a writer to accomplish that. And I'll put yet at the end because you know we're always learning and improving. Can we move? But, oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to oh, ask no, you. No, I was. Sorry, <laughs> you go. Oh, I was wondering if we could move and flesh out a little bit of that space um, from which Luca is missing, because I was really interested in the social and the and the political workings of the sanctuary and Kaylee and Luca, their their group of friends. As young blessed, they're brought in to be sought, taught self control, and then they're released back into their communities when they've achieved a kind of emotional equilibrium, and that really fascinated me, uh, partly because the blessed are all so powerful. And on the one hand, it, it struck me as eminently sensible to ensure that powerful people are able to control their powers. And then I looked a little deeper and I saw almost levels of social engineering that the emotional control that the sanctuary sort of sought to taught started to look a little bit like the ways that we, uh, we seek in our society to police identities, to create yeah. norms. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that space that we find ourselves in, uh, the idea of blessings and the sanctuary. Yeah, so I name things very, I would say, unimaginatively, but also at times with a, a sense of irony. So it's, you know, the naming of the sanctuary. Like, is it a sanctuary, though? And who is it a sanctuary for? Um, and it's, you know, I don't really get into the wordplay such as it is, but I sort of, I just like to leave it there in the background. Similarly, blessed. I mean, there's such connotation of blessed with the word. But, you know, their lives are, you know, there's so much prejudice against this group of people um, for reasons that I think range from very valid to just, you know, prejudicial or ingrained prejudice. Um, and, again, it's not something that I'm like, oh, you know, because the idea is you're blessed by the gods with magic. But, you know, like, are they blessed? You know, their lives are pretty, like, they're effectively taught to emotionally neuter themselves and to self-police. Um, 
And as I mentioned earlier, I I just finished reading and teaching The Bluest Eye, which is a phenomenal book and really everyone, I think everyone should read it. It's a, it's a confronting read, it's a hard read and you should read it with Morrison's introduction in which she explains what she is trying to accomplish and how she tried to accomplish it. And I was, you know, in the way of, I think, any creative, I was trying to work through it in my own mind, this idea of how when you tell somebody enough times you aren't, you know, you're dangerous, you need to control yourself, you need to manage yourself, that is a message that you internalise. And that's, no, it's not a spoiler, actually. I think it's pretty obvious across the first half of the book that, you know, and so Kayleen, in addition to being extremely grief-stricken, is also extraordinarily subjugated. I found the way you framed it to be, I guess, kind of beautifully open. And I think, I think a different eye can see this in, in different ways and perhaps even relate personal experience. I, I thought about, again, in a dominant culture society, the way that um, minority cultures can be policed and, and ideas of um, assimilation definitely jumped out at me. But then I, you also kind of had me thinking about this idea of power and emotional control and the way and conformity and that idea that we often hear but is, is probably not always well understood, say the idea that patriarchy hurts men too and the idea that if you, if you are trying to get everyone to be a certain way, it, it's ultimately going to hurt the people who, who feel within themselves that maybe that's, that's not their true self. Um, and I, I like the way you played out, I guess, the way the blessings worked. And I, I, really, like, I really don't want to give, give away too much because it's such a joy to, to discover each, each of the characters and their blessings. But well, thank I, you. I think you gave enough wriggle room for people to understand this on an individual but also on a much larger level. And, and look, th- thank you for saying, and that's what I try to do because I also am keenly aware of the fact that I'm a white, relatively privileged, relatively um, heterosexual woman living in a Western society that has been afforded a number of privileges uh, that I realistically didn't do a lot for. I was saying to a student yesterday, um, you know, it's 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 not necessarily that I didn't deserve it, but doors that were open for me necessarily closed in somebody else's face. Um, so I, I am always conscious of the fact that I don't want to be appropriating a particular experience. I don't want to be, you know, saying, well, this is what I think it is. Um, I try to be open enough that it's clear I'm, I'm exploring a concept and inviting, you know, and saying this is how I am trying to work my way through it. Here's some food for thought for you as a reader. Um, but, you know, you, you sometimes can really miss the mark despite your best efforts. So let's then explore how, I guess, a fantasy world or any any world that is a little more real or a little more, maybe a little brighter. No, brighter. I'm, I'm trying to find a way to, to think about <laughs> to think about worlds that are obviously not our own but that we can, mm-hmm. we can write ourselves into. And look, uh, look, what about we think about, we all know that feeling. We're watching, you know, one of the super movies and we, you know, you tuned in, you want to see some amazing special effects. You know, a, pow- a character's got powers, you want to see them use those powers. <laughs> but it's the characters 
the way we resonate with the characters that make yeah. the use of those powers so special. And I'm just I'm going to hearken us back to Mirror Mirror and your great examination mm-hmm. of Disney, which now owns Marvel. And and for me, I'm like, if I'm going to watch a superhero movie, it's Marvel over DC every time because they absolutely hit those characters. So what happens then for yeah. you when you're crafting a story about power? How important is character? Or if I can frame that a little differently, where is the balance between the characters and their powers? Um, I mean, character is everything. And I think sometimes, I think fantasy gets a lot of derision because sometimes character isn't the forefront of, or, or the nuance of character development isn't at the forefront of the plot. Um, and, but I also think people assume it's all about power and nothing else. I mean, I can give you a very technical, very nerdy explanation as to how and why I think fantasy is the most spectacular vehicle to get people to think about stuff they otherwise might not. Um, and the the layman's terms is that you move into a, a different conceptual space and processes in your mind that would otherwise say, oh, no, 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 are, are removed because you're in, you know, you're not in our land, you're in, you know, you're in a fantasy land, but the ideas being put forward and nevertheless, you know, you, you, you ruminate over them. Mm. Um, and so for me, you know, character interacts with that. And I start with character. Realistically, I start with, or I start with a concept and all, and it's generally a, a, an interaction between a character and another character. So for Queendom of the Seven Lakes, which was my first duology, or the duology I first published, um, I had a really, I had an idea of an assassin having a conversation with somebody, probably a king. I liked the idea of the power imbalance, and her, him saying, "But doesn't it bother you? You know, doesn't it bother you that you kill people and does it ever?" And her saying, "Well, you know, yes, but no." I, you know, it, I'm the weapon. I'm not the person pulling the, the trigger. You know, I'm not. I'm. I'm the. I'm the knife. But someone else put that contract out, and the very philosophical view of well, everyone's going to die if I'm the happen to bring it. Yeah. Um, with ruthless land, which is a standalone in the fourth country, and Lexa, who is who appears just for a couple of chapters across this book, Deliverance. She has a whole book of her own, which is ruthless land. And I was really interested. Well, I was really interested in the idea of a um, not a student-teacher relationship because that's kind of gross, but that that idea of a taboo. And then I fleshed it out even more, and I thought, well, what if men were subjugated? What if men were forced to veil, and a woman is having a relationship with a man who perhaps doesn't? And so from there, you ask yourself the question of, okay, but where does what about this character's experience? Reveal bits of the world to us. Um, Isabel Carmody at the 2016, I think, um, uh, Emerging Writers Festival, she described it like that. She said, I, the world reveals itself to me as I move the character through it. So I have, my books are relatively lean. You know, you can really rip through it in, a, in an afternoon if you're particularly dedicated. The reason being, I have so much more understanding of what's going on in the, the the country and the world. Like I think about the economics. I think about, oh, well, where's the mint going to be for the coins? Um, but it's not if it's not relevant to the story, I'm not going to put it in there. If the character doesn't need to know this or if it's not 
you know, telling, you know, if a character, you know, if a character says, oh, here's what the mint is and here's the, the, the volume that we, we produce, it's going to be telling us something about the characters that they know that information. If it's just me putting it in for the sake of me being like, here's the cool piece of world building, it's going to get cut. So now if we can, if we can follow that analogy, you know, we, some people may tune in for the powers, but the character really, really drives us forward. We need to know a little bit about the strength of that character. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to feel, uh, it's not going to feel authentic if, um, if a weaker character, you know, defeats the Hulk because you go, he's so much stronger. <laughs> so how does character strength work? And character arcs, they necessarily mean change and growth. And without giving anything away, it's, it's fair to say that within Kayleen's group of friends, your team maybe, as it were, they, they've mm-hmm. suffered an enormous loss when Luca dies and they have a journey ahead of them. How do you know what you can throw at your characters? How do you know that they're going to be able to take it? Um, that is a phenomenal question, Andrew. That's actually a great question. Um, so I don't buy into, I really don't like the storyline of, and she was far more powerful than she ever realised um, in the sense of, oh, you know, it was, in, it was within me all along. I really don't like that because to me it feels like a lazy Deus Ex Machina. It's like, oh no, I need to, I need to finish this, and I need to find a way to beat so and so. And if only I just believed in myself a little bit more. I, I just, it, it's not for me. And I, having just trashed it, I think there are some stories that do it beautifully and brilliantly. Um, I. I think with some case, in some instance, you know what? I figure out what's most important to the character and that determines it. So um, I'm trying to find a spoiler-free example. Well, I wonder, I wonder <laughs> if we can go. Let's, go. let's go straight to the ending without actually talking about the ending because I feel like a character's yeah. strength really tells you what's going to happen beyond an ending. Everyone knows that experience of getting to the end of a book and and going, why are there not more pages? But the strength of a character <laughs> and the character's individual strength tell you whether or not that story is going to go on. If you get to the end of the book and you don't care, that character probably didn't have a lot of strength and it doesn't make you curious. Whereas if you get to the end and you, and you think, wow, how do they come back from that? A part of you is saying that I'm, I'm convinced I... I want to know. Maybe I want a sequel. I mean, sequels can't exist if, if characters aren't strong enough to move yeah. away from the book that they're in. And a lot of people have said to me, I know this is a standalone, but please don't make it a standalone. And then I have to explain my weird convoluted, like, well, she does come back because each of the four protagonists meets in a separate series and they all have a point of view and that book actually follows on directly from the end of this one. Mm-hmm. And so it's a weird explanation that I've never found an efficient way to convey. That's it for this great conversation with A.B. Endicott. Alice's novel, Deliverance of the Blessed, is out now. Well, it's out now through her website, through everywhere you get your uh, books online. And you can request it from your local bookshop because Alice is a self-published author. She is independent. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Bopel. 
Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's uh, Final Draft 2SER. And if you subscribe in your podcast app, you'll get a new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back, well, with part two of this conversation tomorrow from Final Draft. (laughs) I'll see you next time. Happy reading.